The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. This morning, we're, we come to part number five of our study of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And I thought that I would be done with this subject about three sermons ago. But I thought that it was so important that we really needed to take a close look at this. Uh, this is the doctrine of church discipline, which is really one of the most difficult subjects that we tackle in Scripture. And it's not that this is something really hard for us to understand, uh, though there may be some of you that had not actually heard of this and still until I started preaching on it, because there aren't very many churches that talk about this today. Not very many preachers will, will speak on this. Now, there are some doctrines that you may struggle with, that they're difficult to understand and hard to wrap your head around to try to get the true meaning of them. I think of doctrines like election and predestination and how that works with the free agency of man, the free moral agency of man. And that's a very difficult doctrine. Those are... and People have been arguing about those for centuries. And I, and I think about doctrines like the Trinity. The Bible teaches that God exists in three persons, and yet he is one God. The Trinity defies human explanation. I mean, there really isn't anything that prepares us for it. There's nothing in, in all of the world and the natural thinking of man that can help us to understand what the Trinity actually is. But the Word of God teaches that. We don't have any human experience to prepare us for it, but it's in the Word of God, and we teach it, though it's difficult. There's the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And some of you may not have even ever heard of that term, and yet you know the concept. The hypostatic union is that Christ was 100% man and 100% God in one body. And yet when Christ came to this earth, he didn't give up any of his deity to become a man. But he lived here and he died as a man. And that's hard for us to understand how God did that. So there are doctrines that baffle our minds. But this doctrine, th this one that's taught in the scriptures, is not hard to understand. And it's not difficult because it takes copious amounts of academic pursuit to try to figure out what it's all about. But it's very difficult because of the implementation of it. We just don't want to deal with this. Not hard to understand, but it's against human nature. And it's against what we think that we really ought to do. I mean, it's just not natural thinking for us to desire to exercise church discipline. So there are hardly any churches that practice it any longer. And most churches definitely wouldn't tackle it on a, on a Sunday morning. But that's what we do. And we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew since the end of 2008. And you see on your listening sheet and on the screen this morning that this is sermon number 191 in this series. And those of you that have been coming for all of that time, you know that we do not skip over the difficult, the hard parts in the Word of God. It's all the Word of God. And all of it's good for us, and we need to learn every part of it so that when God says, do this, we need to do it. Well, what am I talking about that's really so difficult that many people won't preach it or practice it. Well, we find it right here in verses 15 through 20 of Matthew chapter 18. Now, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we'll go through this passage once again. 
Today we're actually going to concentrate on verses 18 through 20, but we'll read the whole passage because I'll make a little bit of reference to this. Verse number 15 says, Jesus is teaching the disciples, and he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Father, thank you for the, your word and help us, Lord, as we look at this subject today to understand very clearly what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the past four messages, we've covered verses 15 through 17. And at the end of verse 17, we find the one thing that really bothers us so much. In the end of that 17th verse, we find an exclusion or the exclusion from the fellowship of the church, a member of the church that does not repent, who through repeated attempts to try to bring him back to fellowship with the church refuses to repent of sin The Bible tells us in this passage that we are to put that person out of the church. Now, the entire chapter is given to show us that God treats us like his children, that when we're saved, we come into his kingdom as children. We're helpless and we are defenseless and we must be humble like children. And God also promises that he will protect us, that he will care for us as his children. And Jesus illustrated that in the first part of this chapter when he called a little child and brought him into the midst of the disciples and set that child before them. And Jesus said to the disciples, unless you become like little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Now that little child became an example for the disciples that God cares for, that God loves his little children. But he also does something else that's very important, and that is he disciplines us like children. And when your children act up and they disobey, you correct them. And that's because you want them to grow up to be well-mannered, well-behaved, honorable members of society. You want them to reflect the values that you've instilled in them. And so you show them the right way to go because you know that all children are prone to go the wrong way. They're prone to do things that are harmful to them. And so what you want to do is discipline them to show them the right way to go. Well, God knows the very same thing about us. He created us. He knows the human heart. He knows that after we're saved, that we're prone to get into trouble, that Christians will wander away, that if we don't keep our eyes on Christ and we're not worshiping as we should, and we don't come to church and we don't do what he's commanded us to do, we do wander away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is why he gave us the example there in verses 12 and 13 of the shepherd that goes out and looks for the one lost sheep. That's an example of what we are to do. Christ goes after the one lost sheep and he brings him back. 
And essentially, that's what verses 15 through 17 are about. That when one wanders away from the church, when a person gets into sin, that it's the job of more stable, stronger Christians to watch out for the weak ones and to go after them and to correct them. And that's actually what church discipline is all about. It's the attempt to bring back the wandering ones and to teach them to be more like Christ. Now, in our first lesson, I gave you the impetus for church discipline, that church discipline is for training and for learning to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think most churches have forgotten this. They, they just don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to confront anybody because it just seems too negative and too invasive of the privacy of others to, to see the necessity to take the steps to correct them. But the New Testament very clearly makes this our responsibility. And if we don't discipline those who walk away from the Lord, then we're not loving them or we don't love them as Christ loves. Now, this is what the Bible says about the Lord. He he chastens those that he loves. He disciplines them. And we have been commanded in scriptures to warn them about their sin. And if we don't do that, If we allow them to go ahead and do things that are personally harmful, how can we say that we love them? Yet we've become very mixed up on the subject, and many think that letting people to continue in sin somehow demonstrates more love for them than pulling them aside and trying to correct them and show them the right way to go. And then the really hard part of this comes in verse number 17, the end of 17, that if a person refuses to repent, after all the efforts have been made to try to turn them around, after all encouragements have been given, and they still won't repent, the Word of God says that we have no other recourse but to remove that person from the fellowship of the church. And that's the really hard part, because there are just so many people that think removing a person from fellowship is unloving, and that is uncharacteristic of Christianity. And it's especially hard if it means that we have to shut off contact from that person completely. Now, there's some that are content to say, well, yes, we do understand this, that if a person is involved in adultery, that's a terrible sin. And we know that you can't commit adultery and be a part of the Lord's church. They understand that. But does that mean that we can't just have fellowship with them outside of the church? Can't we just go on the way that we were? And the answer to that question is no, Because Jesus says that what we're to do is to treat them as a publican and a heathen. Now, in the context that he gives this, a publican, of course, is a tax collector. He's someone who double-crossed his own people by collecting the Roman taxes and then extorting more money than was necessary to pay and then taking that money and lining his pockets with it. And so this person who was a, was a tax collector in those days, he was a traitor to his own people. And Jesus tells us that a member of the church who turns up his nose at the rebuke and the chastening and the attempts to try to turn that person back to where they will repent of their sin and, and come back into fellowship again, he tells us that that person is actually a traitor to the cause of Christ. Paul also said, note those people and have no company with them. He said, purge the church of them, get them out. And he said a very strong statement, which we'll talk about a little bit more in just a minute. But he said, deliver them unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, that's strong language. 
Jesus and Paul both use very strong languages, language here. And, and churches just will not do this because they don't think that it displays true Christian character. But we just have to keep asking this. Is it more Christian to allow sin to go on in the church? Is it more Christian to allow the church of Jesus Christ to be unpure and to be unholy when we know that the express purpose of Christ coming into the world was to put away sin? And so are we actually unchristian and are, are we overreaching when we practice church discipline? Well, this is where we need to move into the teaching of verses 18 through 20. And I'm sorry I don't have time to cover all the previous points that we've talked about in the last four weeks, but I will just list them for you. Number one is that the church is the right place for discipline. Number two is restoration is the purpose of discipline. Number three is the responsibility of discipline falls upon the people. And number four, we are to respect the process of discipline. Well, now we come to this last point, and this will end this little series that we've had on church discipline. Point number five is the ratification of discipline. What is the authority for this? When the church takes an action like this, when it moves towards discipline, and that discipline ends up with the removal of a member, where do we get that authority? Now, when we practice discipline and we resolve it in one of two ways, that either the person repents of his sin and he restore, is restored to fellowship, or the other way, that he will not repent and we have to remove him from the fellowship, where do we get the authority to do this? Well, that's another amazing aspect of this text. Did you know that the church of Christ on earth is in constant communication with God in heaven? That God has put us here to do his work? In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, it tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. And so while Christ is in heaven, he has put his church here on earth to do his work, and he stays in this communication with us. Now, the chief means of communicating with God is always through the Word of God. And couldn't we say that if a church follows the instructions that are given in God's holy Word... Aren't we able to say that God puts his approval, that God's approbation is upon that church that follows the instructions? And couldn't we say that a church that, on the other side of that, conversely says, well, we're not going to follow the instructions, we're not going to do what God's word says, do we think that God is going to bless a church that would act towards his word in that way? Well, in case we should miss it here and think that we've overstepped our authority by calling people out on their sin we have this added word in Scripture, that heaven backs it up, that heaven ratifies our action. Heaven gives approval to this when we do it in the way that the Bible describes. Now, notice the language that we have in verse number 18. It says, Verily I say unto you, Jesus said, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we've seen similar language to that in chapter 16. If you want to turn back there for just a minute, in chapter 16, Jesus was speaking to Peter, and this is the only other part of Matthew where the church is actually mentioned. The subject is the church in verse number 18. And in verse number 19, Jesus had confirmed Peter's confession of faith, that Peter said in the 16th verse, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus confirmed that. And then he said in verse number 19, 
And I will give unto thee, speaking to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now those of you that have come out of a Roman Catholic background, you may recognize these verses because the Roman Catholic Church uses this to say that Peter was the first pope, that he was given the keys to heaven, and so therefore power, uh, Peter had the power and the authority to admit certain people into heaven or to prevent them from going into heaven. And from there, Peter passed that authority on to his successors, and Peter passed that along to the priest of the church, and they also then have the power to forgive sins. And so people will go into the confessional, and they'll say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And the priest tells them what to do. He forgives their sin. He gives them the punishment for it, and he tells them that they must go and do penance. Well, is that what the Scriptures teach? Oh, we come into this 18th chapter, and we understand by reading this that those words were not intended for Peter alone, that Peter did not receive any type of special office because of what Jesus said in verse six, or chapter 16, but rather Jesus is speaking to the entire church and those apostles as they represent the church, and the authority to, get, to do this is given to the church as a whole, that when the church agrees about sin and when we exercise discipline upon a sinful member, that heaven ratifies the action that we take. Well, what does he mean by binding and loosing? Well, we're following the instructions of the Word of God. And so when we see a person that sins, we confront them. And when they don't repent, then we have the authority to say that your sins are bound on you. That when we've made repeated attempts to try to restore them to fellowship and they won't repent, then we can say your sins are bound on you and we must take action against you because you will not repent. Now, heaven's already said that. God in heaven has already said what we must do. So heaven agrees with this. And so we're not taking an action that hasn't already been sanctioned by the word of God and by God in heaven. And when Jesus gave the model prayer, he taught his disciples and said that when you pray, you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how are we to do the will of God on the earth as it is in heaven if we refuse to follow the commands that he's given us? And so what do you as a Christian have the authority to do? Well, you don't have to be a Catholic priest to do this. In fact, the Bible teaches that all of us that are believers in Christ, we are, we are priests. We are believer priests. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. But God has given you the authority to confront a person that is in sin. And not only do you have that authority, but you have that obligation to do it. Now, if you were to go to a lost person, and you're talking to them about the Lord, and you tell them that they must believe in Jesus Christ, and you tell them about the penalty for their sins, and you tell them the wages of sin is death, and you say, if you don't trust in Christ, if you don't repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you'll die and you'll go to hell. And that person says, well, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. Don't you have the authority to say to that person, if you do not believe this, then you are on your way to hell? That when you die that you'll, you'll not go to heaven, but your destiny is hell? Don't we have the authority to do that? Well, of course we do, because that's exactly what the Word of God says. Well, when you're talking about a church member, 
and one that will not repent, someone that has said, I believe in Christ as my Savior, I become a member of the church, aren't we authorized to call that person to repentance? Heaven's already agreed with us. And when they don't repent through all the various efforts, heaven agrees when we put that person out of the church. We act upon heavenly authority. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. And in this 8th chapter, we have a demonstration of this that I want to show you. It's in the story of a man by the name of Simon that lived in Samaria. Philip the Evangelist was sent to Samaria to preach the gospel, and while he was there, there were lots of people being saved, and there was this man named Simon, and he had been a sorcerer. And he believed, he made a profession of faith, and then Philip baptized him. Well, the apostles in Jerusalem heard about this and heard about all the people that were being saved in Samaria. And so Peter and John went there to witness it and to speak to those disciples. And the Bible says that they laid hands on these people that had professed their faith, and those people received the Holy Ghost. Now, now let me just add a side note to this that this is one of the places of Scripture that convinces me that miraculous gifts were given by the apostles, that no one had extraordinary gifts like speaking in tongues, the ability to heal, or do any of those things unless they were in the presence of the apostles. You might want to check that out sometime, that we don't have any place in Scripture where anyone spoke in tongues except the apostles were involved. And that's one of the reasons why I think that we can't speak in tongues today. We don't have any apostles. When the apostles died, so the miracle gifts died with them as well. But that's a subject for another time. So we'll look here at, uh, go on in this, and looking at Simon, he was watching the apostles lay their hands on different people. And if you look at verse 17, then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, do you see this? Peter and John could see that Simon had made a false profession. Now, he said that he believed, but what he wanted to do was to make Christianity a part of his money-making scheme, much like we find among faith healers today, prosperity preachers, and even in the Roman Catholic Church. And so what did Peter say to him? He said, your sins, in effect, he says, your sins are still on you. You are in the gall of bitterness and you're in the bond of iniquity and you need to repent. Well, who was this guy? He was a confessed convert. Philip had baptized him. He was now in the church. And so what did Peter say? Peter declared to him what heaven said, that he could not be saved if he was a person that did these kinds of things. That if he tried to make a mockery out of Christ and out of the Holy Spirit by purchasing the gifts of God with money, then he couldn't be a saved person. 
And this is the idea that we have of the passage in Matthew 18, that we are able to make those kinds of declarations, that when we see the activities of people that don't worship the Lord as they should, and as they believe false things, and if they don't, uh, if they continue in sin, and they don't repent of the sin, and they go on with the unholiness of their lives, then we're to conclude from that that these people must not be saved. And when we remove them from the Lord's church, heaven ratifies that action. Now go on to the 19th verse in Matthew chapter 18. Here Jesus says, Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now that's actually a repeat. In case we didn't get it the first time, we'll get it here in verse number 19. Now notice the criteria. If two or three of you agree... Well, who are these two or three that he's speaking of? Well, this is one of those verses that's sorely abused and often taken out of its context. I've heard this many times when watching TV and watching some of the charismatic services, that they'll take this verse of Scripture and they'll say that if there are two or three of you that get together and you agree on something, that you have the power to bind Satan. And you have the power to claim your miracle. Well, this has nothing to do with miracles. You need to keep it in the context. And it's something you need to remember. Only Christ can bind Satan anyway. And two or three of you or two or three million of you don't have the power to bind Satan. Only Christ can do that. So who are these two or three witnesses? Well, they're the same ones that we saw in verse number 16. These are the witnesses that Hear the conversation between the person that offends and the person who has been the offended. And so they hear the conversation between them and they listen for an attitude of repentance and they listen for a confession. They listen to see if that claim is valid and if that person will repent. And if they don't repent, these are people that can say to that person, your sins are bound on you. And if they say, well, I do repent. I'm sorry for what I did. I know that it was wrong. Then they have the authority to say to them, well, you can be restored to the fellowship of the church because you have repented of the sin. You can enter again into fellowship. Now, that doesn't come close to claiming a miracle or any special power from God. This is not a declaration that if we can get two or three people gathered together for prayer, that if we ask something, then God's obligated to do this. This is not a claim on the power of God. It's just a declaration that heaven agrees when we practice church discipline. Now, we go on then to verse number 20. Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And here is another verse that's taken out of its context. And you need to remember that context is always the most important part of interpreting Scripture. Now, if you have a Schofield study Bible, as I do, Schofield makes a point here, and there's a little heading right above this scripture that says the, it says the, the, the simplest form, the simplest form of a local church. And so Schofield would have us to believe that two or three people can make up a, lo- a local church. Well, Schofield was a pretty good guy, but he did Christianity a great disservice with his ideas about the church. This is not talking about what makes up a church. This is still those two or three witnesses. And the context here is still talking about discipline. 
And whenever you stray away from the context, you can come up with all kinds of strange doctrines. And you need to watch out for that because it's what many preachers do. They pick out a verse, they lift something out of scriptures, out of context, and by doing that, you can make the Bible say just about anything that you want it to say. Now, the Word of God here is not telling us that two or three people make up a church, and so these two or three people can decide, well, we'll just go out and we'll discipline someone, and we'll do whatever we want, because our decisions are just as valid as the church that we've left behind. Well, that's not true. These are people that come out of the church with the sanction of the church to be able to to bring this person back to repentance. So what's Jesus trying to tell us in, in all of this? Well, the idea that comes across here is that God wants a pure church, that he wants a church without spot or wrinkle. He wants a church that is dressed in robes of white. He wants a church that is righteous and holy, and that's to be their characteristic. He wants a church that's willing to purge out the sin. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and we looked at this last week, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And that's a verse of Scripture that simply says this, that sin attacks us all. That sin left unattended hinders blessings of God upon the whole church. And so God expects us to take the measures necessary to keep the church pure. So the goal is not to get sin out of the church by kicking everybody out. We weren't trying to rid the church of people. What we're trying to do is show them the seriousness of the sin that they have committed and attempt to bring them back into fellowship, to have them repent and be in the good graces of God again. Now, if we correct the sin, the Bible says that we have gained our brother and, and it means that, that none of us can really have true fellowship with a Christian that's wronged us. I mean, if you have a, an issue with someone else in the church, and you come here and we sit here and you know that other person in the church has done something against you or you've done something against them, you know you can't have fellowship in a situation like that. And so what he really wants us to do here is to take care of these problems. So we have the steps that are put in place here to try to bring people back, get people together to unify the church once again, rather than just kicking everybody out. But as we talked about last week, there comes a point when people will not repent of sin. They won't get together. And no matter how much effort that we put into it, they're just not going to do what's right. And so God says, you must put that person out. And so lest we misunderstand the seriousness of the sin that's been committed, we need to understand the serious measures that are taken to try to solve the problem. Now, let me take you back one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, If you misunderstand the seriousness of sin, you need to see the severity of the remedy. Now, notice this verse again. Paul knew about serious sin in the Corinthian church. They wouldn't do anything about it. He said, I've already judged the sin. And then by the power of Christ, he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, when you become a Christian, there's this special hedge of protection that God puts around you. There's protection and being a part of the Lord's body, being a part of the church. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Bible says there that we are the temple of God. 
And that means that the Holy Spirit dwells in the church corporately in a very special way. Now, if you have to be removed from the fellowship of the church, then the hedge of protection is also removed. And what the scriptures are showing us is that then Satan can harass you as an unbeliever. Now, as long as you're in the church, God is protecting you from a lot of the things that Satan does. But if you have to be put outside of the church, then what God does, he's in control of all things and God is in control of Satan. Don't ever think that God and Satan are equal beings and that you make the decision between the two because they can't decide. No, God is God supreme in heaven and the devil is a creature that has been created and God has control of Satan. And if God wants to, he can even use Satan to chastise a believer. And that's what that verse is talking about that you deliver them to the devices of Satan, the hedge of protection that belongs to them because they're in the church has been removed, and now Satan is able to afflict that person as an unbeliever. Now, trust me on this, folks. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be involved in that. You don't want to get into sin and then have the church release you from the fellowship, put you out of the church, and turn you over to Satan in order to get your chastisement. You don't want that. And so it's always best to repent. Now, God takes the action. It's a very critical step because we're taught that a real believer, someone who really knows Christ, should be brought back by this. Now, if a person, or rather the church, is obedient to Christ in taking the steps that we should take, then heaven backs up what we do. And if that person is not brought back, then the Word of God says that we are to treat that person as an unbeliever, that they really do need to be saved. So what does the passage teach? Well, it's more about restoration than anything. God treats us as his children. We must be corrected as children. Sometimes we wander away. Sometimes we get into sin. And like the good shepherd goes after the sheep, we must be God's shepherds to go after those that have wandered away. That we're to search high and low. We climb the highest mountain. We go down to the lowest valley. We traverse seas, whatever it takes, in order to bring that person back to Jesus Christ. This is what we do as a church. Berean Baptist Church has this responsibility. We are God's children, and God expects the mature among us to guide the little children. He expects us to watch for their souls and show them the way to go. And do you realize how much responsibility that puts on you? It means that you're going to have to guard every moment of your life. You have to watch what you do so that you have authority to go to people without hypocrisy. I mean, you don't want to be set on the sidelines and unable to help when somebody goes into sin because you have sin in your own life. And so you are to guard that, and you wouldn't want to be the cause of another person's sin. I mean, perish the thought that that would be the case. So you have to have a life that's closely guarded so that you know that you don't have sin that disqualifies you from helping another Christian. But let me say this part again, that a church that does not preach against sin and tolerates sin, one that lets it go on and doesn't do anything about it, is not really a church that loves people. If we really do love people, then we won't stand idly by and let people ruin their lives with the destruction of sin. 
mean, I would say, God have mercy on a pastor on a church that will not talk about sin and try to do something about it. In Isaiah, in his time, he said that the prophets of God had gone to sleep about sin. He says in Isaiah 56, verse 10, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Now, what we pray is that the Lord will wake us up and may he help us to be a church that is committed to the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 said. We are ambassadors for Christ. And I want to ask you something about that. That if we are the ambassadors of Christ, are you going to be upset when an ambassador of Christ comes and talks to you about the sin in your life and tries to help you to get out of that sin? Would you be upset at that person and not rather be joyous because you know that the person who wants to help you cares about your soul and they want God's blessings to be upon you? Do you understand that's the real attitude that a Christian ought to have? Not that somebody's invading my privacy. Not that somebody's watching what I'm doing. Not that somebody wants to get into my business. But thank the Lord that I have a church that people watch over me and they don't want to see me sin and they want to help me when I go into sin because they want God's blessings to be on me. And in turn, I want to be right so I can be a blessing to the Lord's church. That's what fellowship in a church is all about. And I do hope that all of you feel the very same thing about me, that if you see me doing something wrong, that you would come to me and you would correct me and help me through that. Now, there are other churches that may abandon the work of Christ in this area, and they say, we won't do this. They won't preach about sin. They won't point out sin. And I just pray that we will never become a church like that. We want to be a church that's very serious about this because we want to be in the place of God's blessing. And so may the word of Christ, the word of God, dwell in us richly. And may we obey the commands of Christ, especially in this area, in all areas, but especially here, that we recognize sin, we call out sin, and we ask people to repent of it. That's what the Holy Spirit would have us do to keep a pure church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we looked into your word today. What a serious subject that we have, one that doesn't excite people a whole lot, that's for sure, one that's very difficult for us to do at times, and yet it is something that's very, very much expected of us to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to guard sin in our church, and not because we think that we're trying to lord it over someone, not because we think that we're holier than everybody else, but, Lord, because sin harms the church and we want to do our best to be rid of it. And then we pray for those that do sin against the church, that fall away, that they wouldn't be angry when someone confronts them with their sin, but they would recognize it and they would say, thank you so much for pointing this out to me because I want to be everything that God wants me to be. Help us, Lord, when we deal with these issues. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, 
Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.